Hello, welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galina. Hello. And uh, we're back with this week's edition of the conversations. Yeah, you're literally back from Macedonia. How was that? I gotta tell you, Macedonia was uh, a whirlwind. I was there for only four days and I did not stop moving the entire time. It was this unbelievable gathering of a designer, a couple of friend of mine were getting married there. And it was also one of their 50th birthday party. It and looks so fun on stories. You know what excites me is when I'm surrounded by individuals, people who are expressing themselves through style, they all have their own thing going on. And, you know, they're swanning around, peacocking around and just looking fantastic and inspiring the entire way along. And that's what this event was. And never mind that Macedonia is is a country with with tremendous history. So the backdrop of um of all of the activities were unbelievable. Just really, really an inspiring yeah. place. And I know it's the Balkans. Um, and a lot of people always hear about all the the tumult and the warring and all that sort of stuff in the region. But um, not enough is said about a the 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 landscape and just the the, the natural resources of that region and and the culture, the long culture that they have of course I did a lot I love that you've been uncovering that on a lot of your travels though because you've been going to a lot of places that have one very kind of public perception but you're kind of unearthing another side of it where you're like the culture and the architecture and the history and you're like really unpiecing all of these things that we don't usually see because we're so used to seeing pictures of war and like poverty and on all of the other side of it that is one of the most rewarding things to me. I've, I believe I've said it on this podcast before that I love to be on the front lines, truly uncovering what is happening there, unfiltered by new news broadcast or um, political filters and whatever else. Well, I think there's something in that. that that's, <laughs> that's for another episode. That's for another episode. And this episode, our, our conversation is actually quite a departure from what we just started off with. <laughs> Bit of a bait and switch. <laughs> a bait and switch for sure. And let's set it up here. Uh, we've been, on the, in this podcast, we've been speaking about so much of the musical cheers that's been taking place in fashion. So many of the shifts, so much of the, the different, we've been speaking so much about the different times that we're living in, how fashion right now is redefining itself. There's a no rules, rules to the game. And if there are any rules to be defined, we're in the process of making those rules now. One of the things that has never come up in it's kind of all of our conversations is the this figure of Anna Wintour. I, I know I, you're all probably shuddering out there <laughs> that the name has been mentioned and will be discussed. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this podcast is that we've spoken about so many changes at, at, at fashion houses and different companies, the, the advent of so many entrepreneurial entities in the fashion space, but no one has ever uttered the thought of what if Anna Wintour exited Vogue and exited this industry? What would that industry look like? Okay, wait, is that a nervous laughter you have there? Literally, I, when you said an exit of the industry, it reminded me, I can't even remember what film, when it's like, you'll have to prize it from my cold, dead hands. I'm just like, what exit? Do you, what is this exit you speak of? 
And when Henrietta, that it really does. <laughs> Essentially, you're asking what does fashion look like without Anna Winter, which I don't think is something that is at the forefront or maybe is, of many people's minds. That's exactly what I'm asking. And I'm wondering, why has this not been discussed in other forums? Well, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, but I have some theories. I, <laughs> maybe because you could reinvent everything in the industry except Vogue? I don't know. Um, no, I don't believe so. I just think that there has been such a cult of personality that even forbids, <laughs> you know, thousands of people from bringing up a conversation. I, do you know what? Funny you should say this, because I did think about this at one time when Teen Vogue was going through this revolutionary change and showing up Vogue as they're woke, they're politically savvy, they're really engaging, fully engaging an audience and really tapping into digital. They were becoming their own like mini media brand. And then Vogue just stayed the same. So at that point, I was a bit like, what does this mean for Vogue? Less, what does it mean for Anna Winter? But what does this mean for Vogue? The disruption and and evolution of Teen Vogue was highlighting how Vogue is staying the same. But then there have been so many changes on that platform. Elaine Welteroff has gone as editor-in-chief. They've ceased publishing print. That Not that the evolution was short-lived, but the change changed. So that sort of shifted that highlight of Vogue a little bit. But that was a time when I was really thinking, damn, what does this mean? Well, I think you have um, highlighted a key point there. That being that we are in a digital age is, is less print and more digital. And let's be honest, these changes have been stunning with the advent of the digital age. And the, the Condé Nast organization has stumbled <laughs> in that space. Look at the companies that have come about in this digital age that has really moved ahead of the influence of, of Condé Nast. There has been the net-a-porter. There are the refineries of yeah. the world. There are the glossier. There is the fashion nova. <laughs> yeah. All companies. Vice. Vice. All of these companies that have not needed the cosign, the sanction from an entity like a Condé Nast and have been agile and spontaneous enough to move ahead of the marketplace in really significant ways and leaves moribund, you know, um, legacy companies like that mm-hmm. in the wake. And so coming back to Anna Wintour now, does she have the gravitas? Does she have the skill set? to be able to reimagine the organization in her artistic directorial role at Condé Nast in this age. I mean, she doesn't seem to be the most progressive thinker anymore. Like she definitely was once upon a time, obviously reaching the heights that she has in her career and putting Vogue on the map as arguably the most influential and important publication in the world for decades. But yeah, I think now is going to be a bit of a stumbling block for her because the rules have completely changed. And I think we're reorganizing this idea of power in a way that I think might feel uncomfortable because the whole premise of her persona and her entire career is power. Like she is the one. And are we just talking about power or are we talking about the abuse of power? All of it. Okay. All of it. It's a control thing. And we're looking at things. You look at how social media, I mean, the come up of Instagram and Facebook and not need it. You can completely bypass Anna's cosign or Anna's anointing you as a bona fide designer. You don't need her anymore. 100%. And I think that is also something that, you know, I, I, I imagine that she's also one of the still 
massively, insanely paid editors and she's traveling first class. And I could just imagine it's just all very old school in a way that, you know, you have CEOs of really young, interesting, money-making brands who are traveling on Norwegian Air to Paris. And (laughs) I don't know, it just feels like she's just not really relevant. It does feel another era. And also to that point, of course, there was a time, uh, Henrietta, when that dogma where we were looking for advice and direction from the top down as to what the trends are, what to wear, mm. what to wear where, <laughs> you know, there it was such a it was such an influential publication so and entity. And that role is is no longer no one requires that role from anyone, least of all one individual <laughs> to sanction that. And so with that, when that is fractured, your power really becomes uh, is lessened. And I think that's the case. I think that's what's going on here. All of that, which that organization and Anna Wintour has stood for that vice grip on 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 dictating what where to go what to wear and so on and so forth we're in the opposite times and it really is it's a business shift and it's a cultural shift from a business standpoint like you said it's peer-to-peer entrepreneurs are coming from all areas inside and outside the industries print is not the juggernaut it used to be all of these business shifts uh, not to mention the missteps of, do you remember when uh, Style.com finally relaunched after, what, a couple of years laying dormant? It was like a $100 million investment. Exactly. And then a, a few months later, Natalie Massonet joined Farfetch'd and then it was all powered by Farfetch'd. And it was like, wait, what happened to that? <laughs> I had a lot of friends who were poached for Style.com. It was like a hot mess. And I think those types of missteps, particularly in the digital arena, articulate that maybe she's not the best person to helm that organization. But from a cultural standpoint, we really are redefining our idea of luxury. There's a culture of kindness. That whole mean girls, devil wears Prada is not flying, especially with a millennial and Gen Z demographic. And it just feels really archaic. This whole idea of being dictated to, this idea of looking a certain way. I mean, now Anna's kind of trying to get into this whole inclusive diversity Thing and she's all about like Telfar and uh, you know she's talking about black models on the catwalk but it's a, for me personally it's a little bit too little too late and it feels a little bit like she's jumping on a bandwagon it to, rings to be relevant it definitely uh, rings disingenuous disingenuous to me it feels as though there is sort of like a grappling at straws here but here's the thing you know when this and this but was- also sorry to interject it's not about even whether it's disingenuous or not because we all know brands and people who work in the industry that are singing this song and are completely disingenuous. I think it's about timing. I think where Anna was known for being ahead of the curve and being a progressive business and fashion leader, it's like you're now almost the last to the party and that shows that you are not the person to helm if you're the last one singing in the chorus line. You know, it just doesn't really make sense. And I 100% agree with you. I think that's exactly what's going on. You are powerful and you can hold that power when you know exactly what you want. When you can direct that ship to, to the, with the great understanding of exactly where that's going, that your power is very secure. And I think in this age, as you have pointed out, 
being unclear about where things are going is that you end up being highly experimental and uh, and a lot of things don't work. And I think she is facing that at this very moment where she does not have the confidence to, to move on initiatives that she knows will effectively work. And that's because primarily of this digital space, none of us really know. <laughs> you know, things that we knew 10, 15 years ago, if we uh, tried certain things that there's certain results that would be, that would come on top of that. Now, not at all and I think that's the that goes for her and I imagine it must be really difficult to seed the direction and strategy to a younger audience because they may, they may have less experience but ultimately they know better in this climate and she did it to herself essentially I think when for the you know what she's been at Vogue for what like 30 plus year, 30 yeah, 30 years 30 plus years and she's been an editor for almost 50, I think when you've branded yourself in such a finite way, it's expensive and exclusive and it it's hard to rebrand yourself. Especially in, when she was, point. her yeah. branding was so hard-coded to the world, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it, and to this day it is, there's been no shift in that. And so, and that's why speaking about the the new face of Vogue, that's why when I see certain images in there, I'm just like, Wait a minute, lady. R- really? A-, a Kendrick Lamar in like 23 questions or some figure well, like that? Uh, yeah. And, I, and, but this is what I'm talking about. It, it feels like a, a pivot that's just happening too late. Like all of the content that is catered towards women of color. It's like, you should have been pioneering this. Now, all of a sudden, the internet, you know, Vogue.com is flooded with all this content. Like, We've already stopped reading it. We've already stopped reading it. And I have to, I have to bring up the story. I, I mean, I heard about that you were speaking about Teen Vogue earlier and uh, Walter, Walter, Elaine, yeah. Elaine Welterworth and her tremendous success around the, the Condé Nast offices and really bringing. I would love to see her take the helm if Anna were to go just said. I would love to see her take the helm, but I'm wondering what, why was she sidelined when she was really defining a tone for Condé Nast? finding digital success on the Teen Vogue platform. And then all of a sudden, she sidelined. Some, some, some things that I heard behind the scenes is that her success was feeling and looking too threatening. Like those kind of stories. Again, I, I, these, these are all alleged. This is an yeah. alleged story. But nonetheless, when you hear things like that, it doesn't sound unrealistic. And yeah. I don't like to hear that those kind of things are still taking place in this age in a Condé Nast situation. Definitely when... Elaine announced she was leaving. It didn't sit well for me because her achievements have been unprecedented. I think even before she took the title at Teen Vogue, she'd increased traffic 250%. Like those numbers are, and, and she's made it relevant and young and inclusive. I was reading Teen Vogue and I'm not even their core demographic. She was really engaging the power of of a younger generation. She was very inspirational and she did it all, I think even before she turned 30, like it was insania, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, to see one of the few women of color in that institution yes. then come to these sort of great heights, achieve such greatness. I mean, she was really instrumental in like Hillary's campaign, like all of those things that yes. an editor should be that is so current. She, she talks about kindness and she she fosters this energy of happiness and you know being um candid and and not having to be any one way and all of these really current themes of inclusivity and diversity and honesty and it was such a shame to then see her 
leave for whatever reason. But the fact that it wasn't something that was so celebrated that she felt like, even if there were other opportunities that she wasn't like, this is a good place for me to be to try and change it. It, it felt a little bit sad for me, but I mean, hope, I mean, listen, she is one talented lady. I'm sure she'll go on to do bigger and better things. And I don't know, maybe Condé Nast in general is a ship that needs to be jumped. Maybe. So it, it could be that on the flip side, but I definitely felt like Anna should have tried to keep hold of her because public facing her and her counterpart, digital counterpart, Philip, are the only two relevant figures in that organisation. In that whole... Or, um, as or, far as I'm aware. Right, right. Uh, I, and, and and I agree. In this age, I think those two... Well, <laughs> Walter Wirt is no longer in the mix, but Philip certainly is with them. Which, uh, by the way, is the only relevant platform that Condé Nest have. Okay. But in, we're, we're speaking about some other... Some players sort of in the wings... But the reason why Anna Wintour has been so successful all these years is because obviously she has been so skilled (laughs) to be able to chart a course for herself that has allowed her to really lord over this industry for so long. I can't think of someone else with that cult of personality who is, exists in the business now, but maybe that's, maybe that's not what we need for yeah, the age going forward. I don't forward. know that you need to replace an Anna Winter with an Anna Winter. And interestingly enough to your question of what does fashion look like without Anna, I don't think it's going to be an immediate change to a lot of the things we're seeing in fashion and culture of kindness, inclusivity, diversity, because don't forget she built a framework that is now somewhat calcified. She fostered a team of people under her who lead like her. I think it's really going to be a timely shift. I don't think it's going to be something that happens immediately because she was that influential. And it's almost like, you know, not, I don't mean this in the negative way that it sounds. I'm just saying the saying, but they say that the fish rots from from the the head. head. Therefore, even if you cut the head off, the fish is still rotten in some respects. So I I think that it's going to take some time to really reset and adjust if she does go. I don't think it's going to be immediate an immediate shift. And I don't disagree with that. Uh, however, I don't see a lieutenant who can sort of like steer the ship, certainly not to the level that Anna had or with that, that grip she had. But I don't even see a lieutenant who can keep the house in order. I don't know if anyone has been groomed, uh, whether in, in, internally at Condé Nast or in this industry as a whole. I don't know. Or if we need such a figure. Do we need such a godmother, mother figure in this business to look to for, uh, for approval? I mean, it was a bit of a dictatorship, realistically. So I don't know if anyone's groomed for that amount of power and responsibility. It's quite a unique position. She was the head at Condé Nast and Vogue and the CFDA and every, <laughs> the <Met Ball> and-, <laughs> and, and it's like, and every, it's, it's almost like a, a creative director or CEO can't be hired without her approval. She's recommending and, and pu- pulling strings in a way that no, I don't think anyone else is going to be handed the keys to that level of power. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, like those big banks that, that fail. It's, they're going to be broken up and divvied up into different people and different people will, helm different things and I think it might go back to being more democratic in the way that fashion is intended for sure I mean there's no who's who's gonna take all of that I think that's a key observation and another one being that this age is largely about collaboration this is the collaboration era 
is she the person to even usher this forward for the next 10 years? I think she's proven that she can't. Okay. I think she's proven that she can't. Really? I mean, it sounds super harsh, but I think everything that she stands for and everything that she's built just feels quite outdated given where we are. And actually in Paris, what was really funny, a lot of the older people in the game who still think about power and a lot of the things that a younger generation don't think about, they were saying that they think that actually Eva Chen is the most powerful woman in fashion. And it's not even fully clear what she does at Instagram. I know she's instrumental to making fashion, you know, one of the larger verticals there. Right. But that just gives credence to how powerful digital is, how big Instagram is, and how big the cult of personality within this idea, like what we were talking about with Elaine, Eva's very approachable. She is a working mother. She uncovers the veil in a way that, I mean, Anna Wint is a mother and I- You barely know she's a mom. I've said that before in this podcast. But really, it's not something that you would, it wouldn't even be in the top 10 list of descriptions for her. And so I think that it's not necessarily about power or even what you do. I think it's about an affinity that people feel and the way that you inspire people. And I think that she always inspired people in a very different way to how we're inspired by women today. I don't know. I can't really explain it. Like, I really love her business Paris and she's, you know, business savvy, but... That's really about it. But you can go to anyone, Natalie Matinee, Emily, uh, Emily Wise, sorry. All of these other women who do it in a very inclusive and attainable and, and kind and all of these other things. So even then with Anna, you're just a bit like, yeah. I hear you. Those things are important today. Those things are important today. Well, I, I we've hypothesized, we've hypothesized about uh, this scenario. I have to tell you, Henrietta, I feel, I feel a movement. I don't know if this is as far off as it may feel for some. I feel that, I I feel that her tenure may be over soon for many of the reasons that we discussed in this, in this exchange. Well, you know, explicitly, what, how would you answer that question? What does, why don't we end on that note? What does fashion look like to you without Anna Winter? Well, I'm glad we we raised that question in this podcast, but I don't know that I have a... Um, I, that's why this is a good question. I don't know that I have a really concrete answer for that because I think things get so splintered in a positive way. For the record, I think that without her dogma, it's gonna be it's gonna be positive. Full stop. I think it's gonna be more inclusive. I think that their authority is gonna be found in different areas. I think more more designers and more things will just come will be allowed into the into the fashion gives room industry. to more voices. Give room yeah. to more voices for sure. And we see, for example, look at this stunning change at British Vogue and what Edward has already, the changes that he's already made there. Showing her up already. He, he is showing her up and he's and he is showing that modern day times look very different. Though Vogue may be in the title, it's the cover of what, uh, what he put inside. What he puts inside is very reflective, or at least that's what he's trying to do, is very reflective of what life looks like currently what he's done in a few short issues is is proof that change can happen right absolutely but also i mean it's hashtag new vogue for a reason correct correct and um i don't know that anyone could have imagined what edward would do at a british vogue and it's still unfolding and i think that the 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 question is really still out for the question is still out for if a change were to come to vogue 
depending on A, who would go there. And I don't know what the marketplace would look like, but I'm interested to find out. Well, I mean, to the to the point of Elaine, Edward fits the archetype of inclusive, kind, and all of those things, which seems to be where the shift is going towards, even within Vogue. I mean, British Vogue, Teen Vogue, you know, they're all sort of following that direction. So it seems only natural that American Vogue would want to do that authentically. Authentically. But I think that your answer is really telling because actually I think the answer is no one knows. And I think that's what's exciting. Yes. Because with the dogma, it's always, you know, you almost know what it's going to look like. You know where it's going. And I think it might bring that sense of excitement of anything's possible. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows who's going to be in the mix? And I think that's part of what we're getting back from fashion. And I, for one, welcome it. Yeah. Interesting thought, though. Interesting thought, thought indeed. Let's leave it on that note. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>